What's up, guys, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Listen to Me Speak podcast. We are on season three, episode 18, and we are finally at the episode that I have been waiting to give you guys since what, last year when Beyonce first announced that she was going to be dropping new music soon. I remember the moment her interview, I think her cover with, what was it, Vogue? dropped and she was talking about you know her working on music for the past few years and you know I had you know convinced myself into believing that maybe there was a possibility we could get something last year but it did make sense that she you know wasn't going to plan on doing anything until next year when you know things like touring and really being able to push and promote music was really possible and last year we were just kind of you know, coming out of it, we're still in the pandemic, don't get me wrong, despite how some people are acting, we are still very much in a pandemic. But it is a lot easier for artists to tour, to, you know, actually do in-person interviews and things of that nature. So it made sense that she wanted to wait until 2022. And I feel like there's no better way to start this episode than getting right into my uh, Renaissance review. But before we get there, I want to thank you guys so much for listening to last week's episode. You know, I worked really hard to try to get it out to you guys in July, even though that was like the end of July. I tried my best and, you know, just thank you to everybody who jumped right into the episode. Like I wasn't gone for a month. You just jumped right in. So thank you for supporting. Thank you for listening. And thank you for sharing it on social media, sharing it with your friends. You know, that helps a lot. So I really, really appreciate it. So without further ado, let's get right into this Renaissance review. So Renaissance by Beyonce is an album that invites audiences to free themselves, to find light in the darkness and to find joy, which is something I think we all needed, you know, coming on the heels of this COVID-19 pandemic and now even sliding into monkeypox. You know, I think, you know, I've said this time and time again, but, you know, 2020, a lot of artists were taking the time to self-reflect and to, you know, maybe be a little bit more real and raw in their music just because we were all pretty much going through the same thing but I see that shift this year especially in artists being like you know we've been living in the dark for so long we've been isolated we really couldn't be human beings because human beings is just in our nature to socialize and to show affection to one another and we couldn't do any of those things for risk of getting one another sick so it seems like the theme is to just have fun and even though the world is not quite back to normal and it seems like we'll never get out of this thing to try to find your own light. And you see that in Renaissance, you see it in, you know, Lizzo's album special, which I reviewed in the last episode, you really do see that theme. Even in Drake's album, honestly, never mind, you get that theme. So it seems like artists are trying to kind of provide an escape for us. You know, I'm not ready to start going back to the clubs quite yet, but when I throw on Renaissance, it feels like I'm at the club, you know? That's, I think that's why she's calling it Club Renaissance. Like, that's the whole kind of feeling and vibe from this album, and it's definitely accurate once you listen to the music. So, Renaissance is a beautiful blend of house, dance, disco, and pop music. Inspired also by ballroom and club culture, Beyonce doesn't sound like a guest in the space, but someone who has a genuine love and ear for the music who took the time to not only study from those who came before her, but also inviting them in as a way of paying homage and kind of teaching her audience who may not know a whole lot about the space. She's kind of giving you a history lesson in a way. This helps make the album more authentic in my opinion. 
The album also has Beyonce's Southern thumbprint on it, and you hear it on songs like Church Girl and throughout some of the funkier, lively, and groovy production on the album, even down to the attitude that her voice possesses, which is also uh, apparently, because I don't know much about ballroom, but that that is a characteristic of that as well, to have this super bossy and cocky, com like not really cocky, but just, well, yeah, cocky, and, you know, having a whole lot of confidence and, you know, just having this kind of dominating energy. You hear that in her voice throughout this entire album. Though people try to knock Beyonce and this album for the amount of credits on the songs, it's actually what makes Renaissance so brilliant. This album would not work without the contributions from, art from other artists and people in these spaces, which is why this album is stronger than maybe some of the other albums that have tried being in this space as well. This body of work is about inclusion. It's dedicated to her uncle Johnny, who was her mother's nephew, who helped raise both her and Solange. He passed from AIDS-related illness in the 90s. Tina, her mom, says that he influenced both Beyonce and Solange's styles and introduced them to house music, which he loved. And you can hear the homage that she pays to him throughout this album. You could tell the backbone of this album was because of him. And so I think it was a really sweet moment for her to give to both her uncle's memory and to her mother as well. Grace Jones' contributions on a move give the song a dominant and commanding energy, and Thames validates the swagger and attitude that the production already provides. Cozy is a pivotal moment on the album. On this track, Beyonce paints a vivid picture of Daniel Kassar's Progress Pride Flag, which is inclusive of marginalized LGBTQ plus people of color, trans people, and those living with or who have lost their lives to HIV and AIDS, which again highlights the inclusivity that Beyonce is promoting on this album, specifically to uh, trans uh, black people on this particular song. It invites queer black people to feel included and to find pride within themselves with lines like, quote, black like love too deep, dance to the soles of my feet, green eyes envy me, paint the world pussy pink, blue like the soul I crowned, purple drink and coat hair gowns, gold fangs, a shade God made, blue, black, white, and brown, paint the town red like cinnamon, yellow diamonds, lemoncello glycerin, Rainbow Gelato in the Streets, Renaissance, Yachtin, and Capri, which is, again, her vividly painting a picture of what the progress, uh, progress, ooh, too many Ps, progress pride flag looks like. And to drive it home, she has the addition of trans icon T.S. Madison on here, too. It's about true allyship from an artist with a huge black LGBTQ plus following. Like I said before, I'm not into or well-versed into underground ball, but from what I do know of it, Pure Honey sounds really authentic to the space. From the thumping beat to the commanding lyrics with pure attitude, it's the perfect anthem. And the transition from this to the disco pop and honey-like vocals to honey is like an eargasm. Honey, in my, in my personal preference, honey is the better song out of the two just because, just because Beyonce's vocals sound like literally pure honey. Renaissance is her most lighthearted album in years her own voice tells the story on its own. I haven't heard her this youthful, free, and joyous since the beginning of her solo career. There are vocal moments on this album, specifically on Pure Honey, Virgo's Groove, and Alien Superstar that remind me of B-Day era Beyonce. Her vocal stacking and runs in particular are a callback to this time. And you know, within, I wanna say, my second or third listen of the album, 
I said to myself, whoa, this renaissance is really going to shake up my top three Beyonce albums. I've been a Beyonce fan since the beginning, since Destiny's Child. Grew up on her music. And since B-Day came out, I have held tightly to that album, partly because of nostalgia, but also because it's in a phenomenal album. It was, her, it was also her first visual album, too. And that album came out of her pocket, from the recording sessions to the music videos. That was mainly her, not the label. And Dangerously in Love, that's not a bad album. It's probably an album I return to the least, but it's an album where it was probably more, it was more involvement from the label than any other album from her. And with B-Day, you could really hear more of her personality, more of her identity. And I think with Renaissance, you hear an elevation of that. Like you hear a lot of Beyonce's identity and her personality, but it's just more mature. And B-Day was her first chance of being able to, you know what? I don't care what the label wants. I'm doing my own thing. I don't care what my father wants. This is an album I truly want to make. And that's why I feel like B-Day is one of her best. And why I also think that Renaissance tugs on that crown. Because this is a more mature Beyonce. This is Beyonce in her 40s. You know, once you get to a certain age, you stop caring what people think about you. You live in your truth, whichever, whatever that means for you. And I really do feel like Renaissance is a cultivation of those things. She truly takes all of the best elements from her past albums, even from the Lion King soundtrack that she created, AKA Black is King. She takes all of these elements that we love from each of these albums and on Renaissance, she elevates them. You know, you hear the influence of the Lion King soundtrack on songs like Move and, oh, what was the other one? On Energy that features Beam incredible record you hear that again you hear um the influence of b-day on tracks like virgo's groove and alien superstar and i know gift from a virgo comes from dangerously in love but i feel like virgo's groove is kind of like a part two from to get from a virgo and even her song signs off that same album you hear the influence that her both marriage and her you know musical relationship with her husband Jay-Z you hear the influence of that on this album too on songs like even Break My Soul that little rap part she does and even on America Has a Problem where she's you know she when she's been doing this before Jay-Z because Destiny's Child was kind of known for that little sing rap you know thing that they were doing back in the 90s and early 2000s but you definitely hear not only because Jay-Z is co-writing these parts but you can kind of hear his influence on her in that space where I think she's more prone to dip into more hip-hop and rap because of Jay and you hear the influence from the Carter's album on songs like these Renaissance remains a house and pop album through and through but you do see Beyonce try to give something to her R&B fans as well on Plastic Off the Sofa which really reminds me of a lot of the music she was doing on Self-Titled, which other than 4, I mean, it's they're different in a way. I feel like 4 and Self-Titled are her most R&B albums, if that makes sense. You know, for 4, it was more of a traditional R&B and soul. And I feel like Self-Titled was more modern because she was mixing in, you know, the different subgenres of R&B into that album as well. And I feel like 
plastic off the sofa is a callback to that. It's more of like a modern Neo Soul type of tracks, even the fact that she's working with Sid, who's from, I think, the internet. I think that's the group that she's from. But if you listen to Sid's music, you can hear her fingerprint all over plastic off the sofa. And it's one of my favorite vocal moments from the album, too. I think there's a challenge based off of the runs that she does on the song, which are challenging. So props to the singers that are nailing that, because I, I know it's difficult. But I feel like that was like a callback to the people who really love self-titled, her putting it on there, because it doesn't sound completely out of place on the album, but you do notice that it sounds a lot different than the other tracks on Renaissance. So I feel like that was her attempt at calling back. And Beyonce's not typically an artist that will revisit a sound. You know, she really is one of those artists that gives you eras. She doesn't revisit herself. She doesn't try to copy paste an album that she has done before and try to like spruce it up a little bit that's just not her but I feel like Renaissance is the closest that she's tried to appease the people that say they want the old Beyonce back but even on this album it's not quite doing that completely it's okay here are some of the things that you love from my past bodies of work coming back again but it's not it's I'm not really fully revisiting these sounds I'm just kind of giving you what's the word? She's not fully revisiting the sounds, but I guess, like I said, she's just providing some of the elements that we love and allowing that to maybe be the base of the songs, but then building around it with something new. I guess that's the best way. In my head, I feel like it makes sense. Sometimes when I'm doing my reviews, I look, I listen back and I'm like, mm, I could have said that better, but that's pretty much what I'm trying to say. I guess an even better way to say it is that Renaissance is both the beginning and end of a chapter. You know, it literally means the rebirth. So I feel like this is a new Beyonce now. And so I guess to finish off these old chapters, it's here. Here are some of the things you love, you know, but I'm enveloping them with things that are new. This is what you have to look forward to this next decade of Beyonce. That's a better way to say it. You know, here's some of the stuff you love, but now... We're also moving on to this new space. And you can tell that just by listening to this album that she's kind of falling in love with the music again. And that could also be why it took her so long between Lemonade and Renaissance. And it's one of those things where sometimes I think artists need to take a longer break between when they put out important works like that. Because I feel like if Beyonce was to put out an al another album, original album, not, and I don't count the Carters or the Lion King, um, soundtrack. But if she was to put out another original album close closely after Lemonade, I don't think it would have been as positively received because people still would have been stuck in Lemonade. And I'm sure there are some people that are unhappy with this album because they wanted something more like Lemonade. I think most of us have moved past the messaging of Lemonade. Like it's still important, but I think we're past wanting like something super deep from her because we got it already. And now we're in a space where it's like, we don't want to be we don't want to sit and listen to something super, super heavy because that's our reality. We want something lighter. And so I feel like every artist should probably give us a really deeply self-reflective album. And she did that with Lemonade. So now we've kind of moved past the need for that from her. She gave it to us. And so I feel like Renaissance was the perfect next step for her. And, you know, back to that, you know, with her needing to, I think, take, take a long break between Lemonade and this album, I was never worried about Beyonce falling flat because she's always managed to top herself no matter how much of a challenge it could be. So the question for me wasn't, well, how is she going to top this album? 
And mind you, if she didn't top Lemonade, sometimes you put out an album that you just cannot top. It doesn't mean that any album you put out afterward is garbage. It just means that this album is just so great that you just there's just no touching it. You can't touch it. Any other artists, none of your peers can touch it. Like it's just one of those albums. So if Beyonce was never able to top Lemonade, I think we'd all understand because that was that was that wasn't even just an album. It was art. And so it was more so of, okay, well, Beyonce's an artist that strives on topping herself. That's just what she does. What direction is she going to take this new album in then? Because, you know, again, you think it's impossible. And so this album ended up being not only critically acclaimed, but critically acclaimed higher than Lemonade. And I think the reason for that is once you look past the messaging of Lemonade and the visuals... What made Lemonade so great were all of those things. The music was great too, but it was elevated by the messaging, the themes, um, the poetry of it all, the metaphors, all of that. What makes Renaissance so good is strictly the music, the production. Beyonce sounds, vocally she sounds her best, and that's saying a lot, because I thought Lemonade, she sounded her best. All Night Alone proves that. But vocally, she sounds her best, and Beyonce... This is what, 25 years, maybe over that into her career, and she's still sounding better each album. I think that's why people are putting Renaissance above Lemonade, because the music is just undeniable. And, and I'm going to talk about that too before I get into my top tracks. The production and the transitions on, the, on this album are incredible. I feel like when it comes to an artist like Beyonce, I can never like have a, what's the word for it? I could never have like a smooth and clean review just because I have so many thoughts. I try, like when I write my notes, I always try to order them in a way that makes sense. But I just have all of these different thoughts that I feel like this my, this review of Renaissance is going to be just very freeform, but it is what it is. I feel like you guys are going to understand where I'm coming from. But back to what I was saying, the production and the transitions on this album, you guys know I... I the first thing I notice on any album is the production. That's one of the first things I notice. And the transitions on Renaissance are so fucking clean. Some of my favorite moments are from Energy right into Break My Soul. That was so fucking clean. You blink and at first you don't even realize that you're into a new song. It just transitions so beautifully it's an album that you can't listen to on shuffle for that reason because it's not just energy into break my soul i'm pulling up the album now hold on it's not just um energy into break my soul there's another one too well i already mentioned the pure pure into honey which okay it's it's one song so the transition should be easier but still it's kind of like for pure honey the end of um pure into the beginning of honey it's a little bit of the same beat, but then Honey is more of like the softer version of that. You know, Pure has this dominating and commanding energy, and Honey is more of like where Beyonce can do more of her softer vocal tricks. Aha, I remember. It's Cuff It into Energy into Break My Soul. Like that three song run right there, the transitions are phenomenal. And really it ties back into the theme of this album too because it's based off of club culture a ballroom underground ballroom so if you're in the club a really good dj is gonna go from one song to the next effortlessly like one of my favorite things that a really skilled dj can do shout out to dj kodak my girl from college she's really good at mashups and transitioning from one song to the next like songs that she puts together i don't I'm, I, I 
couldn't even think of myself. I'm trying to wonder, I'm trying to figure out how she got from A to B, like she just gets there so smoothly. And on Renaissance, there's a lot of that. It's emulating what DJs do, the producers and engineers, shout out to them for doing that because it made it so that when these DJs inevitably start playing Renaissance, you don't even have to do anything to the songs. They, it does it already for you. She did it already for you. The transitions are there. You don't need to do too much. I've already seen DJs and producers on the internet mashing up other house songs into the songs from Renaissance or even other songs. Like I saw someone do a mashup of, I think it was Thick and a song from Chloe Bailey. I didn't hear it, but they talked about doing it in the club and everybody lost their mind. So this album production wise, when you, when you ignore everything else production wise, it's top tier and you can have an album with great production, but what is the artist doing on with it? And I feel like Beyonce is utilizing the production as much as possible. And it's not just, I feel like Beyonce is one of those artists where her voice is in equal partnership with the production. Or sometimes the production falls back a little to let her shine. She brings out the most out of these beats. And from what I've heard of her process and why it took her three years, is that she's very picky when it comes to beat selections when it comes to the way that she stacks and edits and produces her vocals. She's got an incredible ear and that's what you're gonna, like you can't put out an album like this without having those qualities. Some of my favorite beats on this album is Alien Superstar, Cuff It, which we gonna get into Cuff It. I'm, I'm trying not to say too, too much about songs from you know my top tracks. Cuff It, definitely, Energy, Let's see. I really love Church Girl. We'll get into that. America has a problem. We'll get into that. And even Summer Renaissance, where she flips Donna's Summer's I Feel Love, which I feel like when you make, because Sam Smith did this on their last album too, and they did a phenomenal job. But I feel like if you're paying homage to disco music, you kind of have to sample Donna Summer. You have to reference her somewhere. She's the queen in that space. So everything about the summer renaissance beat and even beyonce's vocals incredible so that's definitely one of my favorite vocal moments on this album now obviously i have to be real this album's damn near perfect but the only song i really don't care for is all up in your mind now i've listened to this album i don't know how many times at this point and all up in your mind is the one song that's never really grown on me Thick has grown on me. I'm That Girl has grown on me. I think those were the only three songs where I'm like, hmm, I have to come back to them. All Up In Your Mind remains the one song I really don't care for. It's one of those songs I feel like could have been left off and replaced with something else. Um, I do hear a little bit of her paying homage to Michael Jackson with the, the color of her voice on certain parts of the song. It's this really high-pitched, raspy um, tone that she carries that reminds me a lot of Michael. But yeah, that's the only song I'm really not feeling. And I really didn't think that Thick would ever grow on me either, but I fuck with the record a lot. I think it's a testament to, to Hip Boy's talent because he's able to kind of emulate any genre. Like I think, yes, his bread and butter is in hip hop. That's like, that's where, that's what he does the most. But Hip Boy, I've been listening to Hip Boy for over a decade at this point. I've heard him produce all kinds of sounds. I've even heard him produce accurate beats for Travis Scott that I feel like is kind of hard to emulate just because he has this weird spaceship, you know, extraterrestrial sound that he has. That's the best way I can describe his, you know, his sound. 
he was able to knock that out of the park. So for Hip Boy, who probably, you know, I think when you're a producer, you just have to be a student. You have to learn all types of genres and sounds. That's what makes you unique. That's what makes you stand out. That's what makes you stand the test of time because Hip Boy doesn't have a particular thumbprint in his music. He can emulate the best producers. He can emulate the best, you know, sounds. I think that's why he's able to produce for virtually anybody. So the fact that he was able to give a beat like Dick to Beyonce, and obviously Beyonce's going to manipulate because she produces too. A lot of people, you know, try to act like she just gets behind the mic and sings. She produces as well. So I'm sure she manipulated the beat for herself to fit what she really, really wanted. But Hip Boy was able to really produce, you know, an accurate, like, house ballroom type of beat it was nasty it was dirty I, I really liked it so it it grew on me but in the beginning I'm like mm, I'm not really feeling it I'm not feeling it but it's definitely one of those songs where if you're like a model and you're walking down the runway this is a song you want to play in the background for sure so let's get into the top tracks from this album which were very very hard to choose at one point I thought about just kind of reviewing doing a step-by-step -step review of each song but this podcast would be an hour long if I did that. So that's not something I'm really, really able to do. So it was, it took me, I think, it took me several hours to finally like dig through every point I wanted to make on this album. And then it took me a while to select the top tracks I wanted because it's one of those albums where your favorites kind of change every day. And this could change. I might do an update with my new top tracks by the end of the year. But for now, my top tracks are Cuff It, Church Girl, Virgo's Groove, Hated, and America Has a Problem, with honorable mentions to Alien Superstar, Cozy, and Move. I feel like that's what made me feel better, being able to do, you know, honorable mentions, because Cozy makes me feel really, really good, because it makes me feel seen. And music doesn't have to be, you know, super, super deep, or sad, and slow, or overly conscious to invoke emotion. And when I heard, you know, the hook to cozy, you know, I'm comfortable in my skin, I'm cozy with who I am. That just really spoke out to me because I feel like I'm just in that space right now. This is like an album that came right on time for me. So cozy is definitely deserves an honorable mention just because I really relate and just feel that that song deep in my bones. So let's start off with my first song on the list, which is Cuff It. This was an instant favorite of mine. It's undeniable. It's a blend of synth pop, electro pop, and funk, and it leaves you feeling good and has the feeling of summer. Now, I'm pretty sure there are other elements of the song that I forgot, but those were the, you know, the genres that stuck out to me. It embodies a lot of personality too, like much of the album does. Beyonce hasn't put this much personality into an album since B-Day. If you miss old Beyonce, this song and album period is for you, like I've said. Beyonce's falsetto gives the song a dreamy and feel-good spirit, and the melody is to die for. My favorite lines are, quote, because I feel like falling in love. I'm in the mood to fuck something up. Next is Church Girl, which I feel like it's probably in everybody's top tracks because it's just one of those songs. You just get it. It's built around a lot of samples, but it's Church of Thy Will by the Clark Sisters that really drives the production and the song, period. It gives the song a gospel backbone, along with Beyonce's gospel emulating background vocals and hums, but the trap drums and bounce give the song that southern attitude and funk that she's known for and excels at. Beyonce manages to blend southern bounce, house music, and afrobeats effortlessly. It's about the duality of woman, like, you know, 
it's this kind of stereotype that church women are supposed to be, you know, God-fearing and they're, you know, holier than thou or they're, you know, classy and modest and conservative. But on this song, Beyonce is proving like, yeah, you get up Sunday morning and you go to church and you do what you have to do. But then Friday night, you're at the club, shaking that ass, having a good time with your friends. Maybe you're there with your man or your woman, having a good time. You don't have to be just one thing. You know, you can be a church girl and you can do all of those fun things with your friends. Doesn't make you any less. And again, it ties into the overall theme of this album. Be free. Don't allow those stereotypes or your religion or your job or whatever it is to hold you back from being free, from being your true self, from finding joy. And each of these songs tie into that in different ways. And that's how Church Girl kind of ties into this. The lyrics are also so fun and witty. And it's Beyonce at her most free and lighthearted. If Church Girl doesn't make you want to shake your ass, you're lying. Because the moment I heard this song, I got up and danced. My favorite lines are, quote, must be the cash because it ain't your face. Because that's fucking hilarious. And of course, people are like, oh, she's talking about Jay-Z. She's talking about Jay-Z. But I just thought that line was hilarious because she could be talking about anybody. And also, I liked, quote, Church girls acting loose, bad girls acting snotty. Let it go, girl. Let it out, girl. Twirl that ass like you came up out the South, girl. I said, now drop it like a thotty, you bad. Bad girl acting naughty. Church girl, don't hurt, don't hurt nobody. Up next is Virgo's Groove, the most sensual track on the album. The production is so sexy, and so is Beyonce's voice. It reminds me of Blow off of her self-titled album because of the disco feel. It makes you want to skate when you hear both songs. The production and her vocals are so complex. Every time you listen to it, you hear things that you missed the last time you heard it. Beyonce knows how to create a good bridge, and I'm glad she's still doing them because they've been missing in music. Along with songs longer than two minutes, Virgo's groove clocks in over six minutes, and it's six minutes of sonic bliss. It's so good that you don't realize how long it is. It doesn't feel that long. And then once, you're, once you actually look at the duration of the song you're like damn this was over six minutes long I think there was another song she has that's like that too maybe it's maybe it's rocket off self-titled it's not six minutes but it's a pretty long song my favorite part of Virgo's groove are her gorgeous runs during the outro they're so blissful and sweet and are reminiscent of dangerously in love back when Beyonce was heavily influenced by the 70s it's a multi-structured song and a standout for sure my favorite lines are quote we ain't got time like we used to, but we still shine like we used to, and we still grind like we used to, and we cut ties when we need to. Also, I love her cadence on this song, too. She just flows all through it. It's like, you can tell that this beat was made for her, specifically, and only her. Up next is Heated. Much like Move, Heated is an Afrobeats-influenced track, co-penned by Drake. Now, you can hear Drake's cadence in much of the verses, but Beyonce truly transforms the song into her own. With her Uncle Johnny Made My Dress, ad-libs, and the outro, which is arguably the best part of the song. That's where she shines and goes the fuck off. On the outro, she mimics the commanding attitude of an MC or DJ in the club. It allows her room to get some shit off her chest against her haters in which she usually doesn't publicly address them with lines like, quote, Monday I'm overrated, Tuesday on my dick which is a standout line because it's so true and it's hilarious. And also because, like I said, Beyonce usually takes the quiet route. Like, even with this whole Khalees thing, which I'll also get into, she usually just doesn't, you know, acknowledge or respond to negative shit like that. 
you know, she's prefers to be, she prefers to have a limited, a limited presence on social media. And it's probably for the best. I think a lot of artists should kind of follow her route of, you know, being on social media when they need to and getting off when they need to, only if they find themselves always kind of going back and forth with people online like Nicki Minaj and Cardi B do. Like, they can both take, you know, they should both follow Beyonce's lead in that way where they should be on social media a lot less. I know Nicki has been on social media a lot less now these days when she's not promoting music, she's not really active. And I think that's probably because she has a child now and because of other things going on that I won't get into. But I think that it makes it more powerful when Beyonce sends lines like this on Heated because this is a woman who does not really go back. She doesn't go back and forth at all with people. She doesn't really respond to negativity. And so when she does on a song, you're more likely to pay attention to it. And I think it's a smart business move too. I'm not going to give you my response for free. You have to pay to hear it. Um, so I think every now and then she reserves the right to kind of bite back. I also think the melody really drives the song too. My favorite lines are, quote, got a lot of bands, got a lot of Chanel on me. I got to fan myself off. I got to cool down. I'm heated. Like stolen Chanel put me up in jail. And, you know, one more thing, too. I think that ad libs really drive the song, too, from the Uncle Johnny made my dress to, like I said, the, like stolen Chanel put me up in jail. And even, and, and this has been like a lyric I've been repeating since the album came out, where she's like, Uncle Johnny made my dress, that cheap spandex, she looks a mess, which she repeats a couple of times. It's just a song, you know, I think that's where I hear Drake's influence on it, where Drake has really like memorable, he has those lines that you quote, quotables. And those, you hear those a lot in Heated. And so you can really hear his influence that way because Heated has a lot of quotables. The last song on my list is America Has a Problem. When the track list first came out, many people I think were worried that Beyonce sn snuck like a statement message on the album, but it couldn't be further from that. Built around the America has a problem cocaine beat, Beyonce says she's the problem and compares herself to cocaine. Her lover is addicted to her like an addict is addicted to drugs. The beat is a mix of house, hip hop, and EDM, and it's just, it's so good. It's so high energy, it makes you wanna dance. It sounds so distinctly 70s. And, back, and Beyonce's background vocals are heavenly on this track. And again, it pays homage to kinda how what kind of music Beyonce came in doing, which was, you know, 70s influenced music. And I think it's also kind of like this, the, the theme and message on America has a problem can be flipped in a different way, which someone pointed out online, I gotta give them credit for that, by saying that it's not just the lover that's addicted to Beyonce, but she's also saying her fans and haters alike are addicted to her as well, you know? So I think they could be all of those things, I think, Renaissance, this album as a whole is a feeling. And so it can, it's open-ended a lot of the time and it can just be interpreted in many different ways and none of us could be wrong. My favorite lines are quote, 204080 out the trap, hit it with the rap, put it on the map, then we write back. Call me when you wanna get high, Tony Montana with the racks, double C's on my bag, double G's on my dash, nigga, I'm bad. Renaissance is unapologetically black and queer and I've never been prouder to be who I am. This is an album for us, and that carries a lot of weight when it's coming from one of the biggest artists who's known to give voice to black people. She's letting us know she's for all black people. And hands down, Renaissance is the best album of the year. Now my rating for the album is a five out of five. 
Now, I know I said that I was going to get into Khalees and her bitterness, but I think I expressed my feelings enough on Twitter. So I'm just going to keep it short and sweet. Her beef should be with Pharrell and Chad Hugo. I think part of, I think really the issue with Beyonce for Khalees is an ego thing because she claims that Beyonce owed her a phone call to let her know the song was being used. Unfortunately, Khalees does not own her masters. That's why I said that it's really an issue with Pharrell. Pharrell is really the thief in the situation. He has your masters. And if Pharrell cleared the record, there's not much else Beyonce needs to do. Now, if there was a relationship there, she may have reached out and said, hey, I'm using Milkshake. But there's no relationship there. And even though Khalees didn't get a writing credit, she did get an interpolation credit, which I feel like is probably all that was needed because it was very, it was two seconds. It was at the end of energy, and if you weren't looking for it, you blink and you miss it. And I do think that she only got interpolation credit because it was a Beyonce call, because Beyonce tends to overcredit, as she should, because I'm sure she understands what writers go through. Writers do not get credited the way they should be. So that's why when people are kind of shady about Beyonce having 23, 24 writers on a song, that's why. And for a writer to be questioning that is fucking ridiculous. That was shady. Either way, that's who Khalees' real issue should be with, not Beyonce. And now it doesn't even fucking matter because Beyonce snatched the sample off. Now you get nothing. So you blocked your blessings being bitter. And this is not the first time she's been bitter. Khalees has been, I think, bitter and nasty her whole career. I mean, there's been shots that she's taken at Rihanna and I'm sure others. So that's really where her... Her anger should be directed at. I think it's only really directed at Beyonce because of who she is. But as nasty as I find Khalees, I do hope that she fights for the right to get her masters because that's fucked up. Pharrell's wrong for that. So I do hope that in the future she's able to get those back. But had she handled the situation differently with Beyonce, I think Beyonce would have tried to do more for her in terms of the crediting on this song. I think she did that for Robin S. I think... I don't know if it was a direct sample from Robin S or an interpolation or she used certain elements that were similar to Robin S's song, but I think Robin S is now credited as a writer and she's living her best life. Had Khalees had that same attitude, she may have been in the same boat. But you know, I read that Khalees is a farmer. She grows her own shit. She makes mad money off of her little chefing thing. So money's not really an issue for Khalees. But I definitely think that she could have handled that a lot better than she did because now she looks bitter. Oh well. But that concludes my thoughts about Renaissance. Let me know what you think, what your favorite songs are, whether you like the album. If you don't, tell me why you don't. I'm I'm curious to know why you didn't like the album. And I think I'll do something on social media where you guys can leave your thoughts and then I'll, you know, respond to them and maybe include some of them in the next episode. So let me know. So moving on from Beyonce, Nicki Minaj is dropping her new single, Super Freaky Girl, next week. And... This is technically billed as her lead single. I guess the other singles were just buzz singles. I mean, I guess that makes sense. They all kind of sound like buzz singles or street singles, especially We Go Up. That doesn't really sound like a lead. Even though these songs have been doing well, like Do We Have a Problem performed really well, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up making the final cut of the album or you know, being released as a bonus or on the deluxe. But Super Freaky Girl, which has a super freak sample from Rick James, that really is built from the snippet that she released to be pushed as a lead single. It seems like it's got enough pop appeal to do well on radio 
to go viral on TikTok. I think from the snippet alone, people have already taken to it on TikTok. It's not like Nicki has to try super hard on that app. Her songs and verses, like her featured verses go viral. I think her most recent one was her death row verse. I don't remember where the, the verse actually comes from, but that's what the sound is labeled as on TikTok. So Nicki is probably one of the few artists <laughs> of that of her era that are successful naturally on TikTok. Her, Beyonce, um, I'm sure there are others that I'm blanking on. Usher, he does well on there. He kind of goes viral. So it's not like she has to shop songs for TikTok, but she definitely does acknowledge her presence on that. So she does try to, you know, give TikTok some stuff. Like, you know, when she put out the snippet, she put it right on, she put the sound right on TikTok so people could use it if they wanted. So I do anticipate that um, Super Freaky Girl is gonna do well She's had a lot of luck this era compared to Queen. Queen, she was definitely still trying to find her footing, but I think she kind of knows where she needs to go for this album. I do anticipate that we could still get her album by the end of the month. Who knows? We were supposed to get it this summer ahead of some of her festivals. She is performing at the Young Money Reunion concert that's been rescheduled for, what's today, the 5th? So it's been rescheduled for tomorrow. So. She's got a lot of these live performances, so I hope she does take advantage of putting out her album sometime soon. I think we're I think we're in a good spot because she's putting out a new song. So it's not like she she's not giving us anything. She did go quiet for a while. So hopefully we get this album. If we don't get it by the end of, if if we don't get it by this month, we'll definitely get it in September, I think. And I don't have high hopes for the album, but I don't think that the album is going to be bad either. I think I'll enjoy the album, but I'm, I don't have a whole lot of pressure placed on this album because I think that's how you set yourself up for failure. So, you know, we'll see what it's giving when it comes out. So moving on from music completely into some movie and TV show news and announcements. So I'm sure I'm kind of late at this point because I think this announcement was made only a couple of days after I put out my last week's episode. But Marvel announced its Phase 5 and 6, a.k.a. the Multiverse Saga lineup, and also its final Phase 4 projects, starting with the Black Panther trailer, which is the last movie in Phase 4. And it makes sense because from the trailer alone, you can tell that this Black Panther movie has nothing to do with any of the outside Marvel projects. It's fully focused on storylines and themes pertaining to Black Panther, which makes sense it kind of had to because of the loss of Chadwick Boseman. And right from this teaser, I keep calling it a trailer, but really it's a teaser. From this teaser, you can tell that T'Challa's gone, he passed away, and the community is reeling from his loss. You can see the reactions of Shuri and his mother and ooh, what is um, Lupita's character's name? I don't remember her name, but... The theory that people are saying is that T'Challa's partner is pregnant and that eventually that child will be the next Black Panther. Now in the comics, Shiri does become Black Panther. I'm not sure if the MCU is gonna exactly follow the events of the comics because sometimes they stray from them. In the, in the teaser, for a split second, you see someone donning the Black Panther suit I personally think it's Shuri, because that's the obvious. And what I think they'll do is they'll have her be the Black Panther for, you know, a time, the time being before the son, the child, if that is the case, becomes old enough to be Black Panther, then 
the suit will, and the mantle will then eventually belong to the child. But I think Shuri will definitely be the Black Panther for the time being. I would assume that Shuri is more into the technology and science. So she would be happy to do to take on the mantle for a little bit, but wouldn't have a problem giving it up when it's time. The teaser alone made me emotional, so I know I'm going to be sobbing like a baby once I actually watch the film. And hopefully, you know, now that my dad and I are like an hour away from each other, hopefully we can, I don't, I don't expect us to be able to see every Marvel movie together anymore, but hopefully we can still see Black Panther together. And I hope he doesn't judge me when I cry because inevitably I am going to cry. I think that Angela Bassett is going to put on one hell of a performance because from the teaser alone, that split second from her gave me the chills. Like I felt every emotion that she was feeling in that moment. And I do also want to say that I hope, I'm not saying that that means you have to, to give it, you know, outstanding reviews, but I do hope that critics and fans alike really give the cast and crew of Black Panther a lot of grace because they had to deal with the grief and sadness of losing Chadwick Boseman and still have to force themselves to move forward and do this film while grieving that loss and being reminded, you know, of that grief. You know, they had to grieve in real life and grieve as these characters. So I do hope that people give them a lot of grace and understanding because they clearly had a plan for the second movie with Chadwick in mind and had to scrap the whole thing and start over. So I will be giving them a lot of grace. I hope the world extends that same amount of grace to them as well. So along with Black Panther, they also announced new Avengers movies, Avengers King Dynasty and Avengers Secret Wars. Now, I didn't know much about either, so I had to look them up. And Marvel, the Marvel side of YouTube is great. I really do love a lot of the content that people, you know, produce. And so I read a little bit up on Secret Wars. I even found like an audio version of like a summary of the comics. And essentially Secret Wars happens when I think it's Kang and it's um, Doctor Doom. They, they, no, no, it's not, it's not Kang. I don't think it's Kang, but Doctor Doom is definitely involved. Anyway, the Beyonder is viewing all the different universes and is intrigued by them. So they pull the superheroes from their universes and put them all in this one world to fight each other. And I do believe that it leads, I think, to the potential of the collapse of the world, something like that. I could be wrong. I watched this video like a week ago, so I could be wrong, I could be missing key details, but essentially it's the Beyonder pulling all of these superheroes into one battlefield and having them fight each other. And certain, and it's not just the superheroes either, it's villains as well. And so you see them kind of pick and switch sides throughout this story. For Kang Dynasty, it's essentially about, you know, the multiverse of different Kangs forming one union. And I think once we get to Avengers King Dynasty, we're going to see the Avengers fighting all these different kings and probably losing. And it'll lead to the secret wars because it's it seems like they're trying to model Infinity War and Endgame. So something's going to go horribly wrong in King Dynasty. They're going to lose to him because I think he's harder to fight and kill than Thanos, which is eventually going to lead to secret wars. Now, the thing is, we'll see which movies fall in between those movies to see how we get from Kang Dynasty to Secret Wars because it is a big jump. And I don't think, I, Kang is a part of Secret Wars, but he's not the main, main villain in Secret Wars unless Marvel decides to do something different there. I think Doctor Doom and the Beyonder are the main villains for Secret Wars. So I've heard a, a little bit about Secret Wars prior to the announcement of this. I just never actually looked into it. 
I do think that, I don't know if it's Secret Wars or something, leads to Evil Hulk. I don't know if they're going to touch on that. That would be interesting. But either way, I'm excited. I think, you know, this these past couple of years of Marvel movies have been a little bumpy as they find their footing now that we have closed a huge chapter in the Marvel movies with a lot of the OGs either not returning or dying. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from there. Also, they did a, I think, a teaser of Ant-Man, which has not been released yet to the public, but it was... And it was released during SDCC. And in that, which we already knew, is Kang's first real appearance. Because the Kang that we met in the Loki series was a, I think, the more mellow and tame version of Kang. He was the one that, I think, allowed the Avengers to go back in time to defeat Thanos. But the other Kangs wouldn't have. They would have killed the Avengers. So he's the more level-headed version of Kang. And unfortunately, a Loki variant killed him. So now we're stuck with the more evil, dangerous Kangs. So Loki really is the one who set, up, who set off these chains of events, which makes sense. And I believe the Ant-Man movie is called Quantumania. So that makes sense. Ant-Man does. I, I've, I've never seen the Ant-Man movies. I'm going to have to probably watch them now. But that's fine. I've started a Marvel rewatch. Anyway, he deals a lot with time traveling in different realms so it makes sense that we see king there we also could have seen king and dr strange considering he deals with that as well but we didn't i'm sure eventually we will i'm surprised that ant-man and dr strange don't have more of a relationship considering they're similar in some ways but it is what it is so i'm debating on if i'm gonna go see ant-man in theaters or not i probably will just because it seems like one of those important films you know, those films you have to watch to get what's going on to the overall main point of where Marvel is heading. But I think what they have planned is interesting so far. I'm looking forward to it. So moving on from Marvel, for those of you who don't know, HBO Max is going through a huge shakeup and change. If you follow me on Twitter, you've seen how unhappy I have been with recent announcements. For those of you who don't know, HBO Max and Discovery Plus have announced that by 2023, they will be merging. Now, I knew this merge was kind of going on because I was reading reports after, um, report after report about, you know, all of these changes of Discovery Plus potentially, you know, trying to, you know, build a partnership with HBO Max. And then there were rumors flying around that they planned on canceling all of the HBO Max originals in favor of putting more emphasis on the things that Discovery Plus wants on there. So now it's going to be a clusterfuck of different things. I feel like the reasoning behind this is just greed because it just doesn't make sense for HBO Max, the bigger brand, the best streaming service out of all of them to merge with a streaming service that nobody's really watching. I knew Discovery Plus existed. There wasn't content on there that I would realistically want to watch so bad that I would pay for the service. So I'm, my mind is blown as to why this merger is happening. I don't think it was necessary or needed. So it ended up coming out that HBO Max originals are safe for now until the merger is complete next year. Then I guess some of them will be cut and shelved. It makes me wonder about the projects that are currently in development, what's going to go on with them, with The weekend's new show with Sam Levinson. I wonder what's going to happen with that because they already had issues and had to kind of restart the 
pre-production for that show, I believe, because they were unhappy with the script and I guess the reception to um, the early episodes, something like that. So I'm wondering what's going to happen with that. I'm wondering what's going to happen with the Degrassi reboot that's supposed to happen at HBO Max, like shows that have been announced but haven't really started yet. They've already kind of just removed and canceled shows and films out of just thin air. They canceled Batgirl, which they've put like 90 million into, I believe, 70 to 90 million into that movie. They completely decided that they were going to scrap it. It's not going to be in theaters. It's not going to be on HBO Max. And everybody involved with that project did not know this was happening until I think the New York Post put out their article. So they found out at the same time as the rest of the world, which is fucked up. They removed certain titles from HBO Max that weren't performing well, which I think is unethical. I don't know if it's illegal, but I feel like you can't just remove people's art from the streaming service into the void. Because once you pull it, something that was directly meant for streaming off completely, there's no way for these creatives to, to get that back. And I feel like if there was a contract involved for this thing to be on the streaming service, whether it's performing well or not, it's already on there. It'd be one thing to cancel a project before it even hits. That's one thing. But to remove something that's, that already exists, and they tried to compare it to, you know, movie, like, you know, third-party movies being taken off streaming services, but it's not the same thing. Those are third-party. That's not an HBO or HBO Max title. It's just a movie that you got the license for. That makes sense. But something that's licensed to you, just getting rid of it, that's fucked up. And... Their reasoning for doing it is because they want guaranteed financial like um, success. And so it tells you that the reason for this is just for monetary gain, which now the, now the value of the streaming service is going to go down because you're only going to put things on there that you feel like is going to be successful. You're not going to pick it for the quality of the art. Or it's uniqueness. You're going to pick it because you think it's going to do well. Or you're going to not pick it because you think it's going to flop. And I'm sorry, you can't always tell what's going to do well and what's not going to do well. Things you think are going to do well could flop horribly. Things you doubted end up being sleeper hits. You can't really go by that. And then the fact that, they're, that they, are, they are separating HBO Max and Discovery Plus into gender norms of Discovery Plus is going to be geared towards women and HBO Max is going to be geared towards men is kind of, what are we in the 19 fucking forties? Like we, we don't do that anymore. We shouldn't be doing that anymore. There are things that women like that you may assume that men like that they don't and vice versa. Men could be into HGTV and you're gearing it towards women. Why? Because it's housework. Like that's, I already don't like where it's heading. And if I do not like what H this merger looks like, I am getting rid of HBO Max. And I'm afraid that when this merger happens that they may get rid of their HBO content and just save it for HBO itself. And if that happens, yeah, I'm out of there for sure. And in a matter of weeks, HBO Max went from being the best streaming service to now making one of the worst decisions. And it makes no fucking sense other than they just want money. And it's really benefiting Discovery Plus, not HBO Max. Now Warner is talking about doing a 10-year plan like they do at Marvel. I've heard this before. Their films have always been hit or miss, at least over the, this past decade. I don't really have high hopes for uh, DC films at this point. 
it would have to be consistent. They would have to be putting out consistently good movies for me to change my mind or, and, and kind of be like, okay, you know, I'm seeing a change here. You know, the Joker and the Batman and the and the first Wonder Woman movie being great films is not enough to convince me that they're they're on the right track here. Um, it seems like every other day the D, the Snyderverse, this current DC timeline is a fucking mess, and it's the movies outside of that timeline that are doing well. Speaking of that, though, they announced that. The Joker 2 film is officially co-starring Lady Gaga, and it's going to be a musical. Like I said in the past, I think it's a horrible idea. It doesn't make sense at all for the Joker to be set in a musical. But I'll see a trailer before I fully judge. But, you know, shout out to Lady Gaga. She's really, you know, been doing her thing in the film world lately. So I can't be mad at her for winning in that way. But I don't know if I'm interested in watching a Joker musical. Speaking of the DC world, it was announced that The Flash is ending with season nine, which will only be 13 episodes. And I'm not overly surprised because the writers and the showrunner of the show said over the past couple of years, they've been writing each season like it's a series finale because they're not sure if they're going to be renewed or not for another season. So, and the quality of the show has just gone down a lot. And you can kind of, the cast... The main cast has been a revolving door and some of the actors have taken on a limited presence of the show. Like the actor who's playing Joe, he got cast in another show. So he was already going to be in the season in a limited capacity. Candace Patton, she was in this season, this past season in a limited capacity. And I believe the actress who plays Caitlin was as well. I think she had a child. So she was in the season in a limited capacity and then some of our favorite characters have gone as well so it seems like a good time to end the flash i haven't really been i haven't really been enjoying the show over the past couple of seasons i feel like barry has become an extremely unlikable character i don't know what the writers are doing there and it's just the storylines and the villains are not as interesting as they once were i think after the was it the zoom storyline or savitar storyline one of those i want to say season four which was like their darkest season. That was like their last really, really good season. And the Arrowverse kind of was falling apart. A lot of the shows either were getting canceled or just naturally concluded. So The Flash was really the only standing Arrowverse show. And I think Superman and Lois technically counts as Arrowverse, but that I feel like is going to become its own thing. So the Arrowverse is really concluding with The Flash, and it's a bittersweet moment. I think what also put a bad taste in my mouth about, about the show is just hearing Candace Patton's experience there. She is a black actress, for those of you who don't know, who plays Iris. And I remember when her casting was announced, she got a lot of racist hate online. And they took what was a beautiful moment for you know, black actresses and they ruined it because Candace Patton really put that on the map for other black actresses in the hero verse even affecting the way that they casted iris for the flash movie a black actress is playing iris too and so she really changed the game in that way of you know what we can take some of these white characters and just flip their race and, and hire black people for that and candace you know though you know javasia leslie faced a lot of racist hate for taking over the mantle of batwoman as well she admits herself that she may not have even gotten the choice had it not been for candace so, you know, hearing about Candace's experience, you know, from her own mouth, because she's been very honest, 
it put a bad taste in my mouth um, about what she had to go through there and just her feeling like she wasn't supported. And, you know, a lot of black actors and actresses face the whole, I have to pay out of pocket for my own, I have to, for my own hair. I have to do my own makeup because they're hiring white stylists and white makeup artists that don't know how to style me correctly. And they're not willing to pay extra for a black stylist and, you know, to help me out. And so a lot of the time, these black actors and actresses, you know, unless they are, you know, Angela Bassett or Viola Davis or um, Taraji P. Henson, they have to pay out of pocket. They probably go to their, you know, black stylist that they have. They do their hair and they have to upkeep it for the entire season because they don't have a black stylist that knows how to do their hair properly. So I do hope that, you know, now that the flash is coming to an end, that Candace Patton can just find other work and maybe have a better experience on a different set. I think she's great. I've, I think I've seen her act since um, the game. I think she was on the game. I think that's where I was first introduced to her on before she joined the flash. And, you know, I became a fan from the flash and I continued watching for Candace. So I'm definitely going to be following her career after she leaves the flash and hopefully she does get booked. I do hope that for her. Cause I think she is a talented actress. I think there's a lot of the times on the flash where they don't really give her a great storyline and she makes the most out of it and it's because of her acting that it makes it worth watching so it really is an end of an era though because the flash has been on for almost 10 years it's been on for a long time it really hung in there so it'll be bittersweet so of course you know i have to get into my review of jordan peele's nope movie now i saw it last week Finally, I finally saw it. It seemed like every time I had plans to go see it, something would happen. I hurt my foot. I went to the wrong movie theater, blah, blah, blah. So I was happy to finally get in there and see it. And thankfully, nothing was truly spoiled for me before I went and saw it because I would have been pissed. You spoil a Jordan Peele film. Like, what's the point of watching it now? Now you can't. Now it takes the fun out of trying to figure out where he's going with the film. But let's get right into this review. So, Nope is a sci-fi thriller that uses both the supernatural and real-life societal norms to unnerve its audiences, something that has made Jordan Peele a brilliant director and storyteller since Get Out, but really since his key and Peele days as well. In short, the film is an observation of how we're both terrified and intrigued by natural disasters and events and our need to capitalize off of it for our own monetary gain and greed. So a brief summary of the movie is it's based on this family whose um, great-great-grandfather was the first black cowboy in film. Like he would, he would train the horses for these films. So, you know, the Western films and TV shows, they created a company where they would rent out horses to these films. And so it's based off of their family. Kiki Palmer plays Emerald and... Daniel Kaluuya plays OJ. And one day they, well, the, the film, I don't want to give too much away so you guys can go see the film, but it starts off with their, I guess I can give this away. Their father dies. He's killed by some kind of weird storm. Something I think ended up like a, like a sharp piece of the house or like some kind of object from nearby gets swept up in the storm and ends up killing him. I think it stabs him somewhere the chest maybe. And so now that the father is gone, it's up to OJ to kind of keep their business going and he's struggling. And the sister 
Emerald is kind of in and out. She doesn't, she's not really interested in running the business because she had her own kind of issues with their father. So she wasn't around as much as OJ was. She didn't take it as seriously as OJ did. And so she comes back to visit because the father passes and you get to know a little bit of their dynamic. And eventually they start to notice that the horses are behaving oddly. And then one of the horses disappears and they notice that this cloud never moves and they, and you know, end of the story, they start connecting, you know, the weird abductions of the animals and the people to this cloud. And they spend the whole, the rest of the film trying to capture it as proof that they're not crazy. And then for money. Throughout the film, OJ, Emerald, and Angel, among others, risk their lives numerous times to catch this menacing cloud that's been abducting and killing humans, like I said. Several times, they mention bringing the photos to Oprah for a cash out, which again, highlights their need for, yeah, this is a, this is a terrifying thing that's happening, but if we capture it on film, that's how we can get paid and get out of our you know, rut that we're in. So that's what they start to prioritize. Even up until the very end, Emerald risks her life to catch this photo. Some people found the final point of this film confusing, but what Jordan Peele does the best is that he builds his films around a very simple point, and nope is no different. To drive this, this um, theme of greed home, he often flashes back to the 90s where we see a young Ricky Park, who's also another main character in this film, who's a child actor. He stars in a show alongside a chimpanzee, yes, a chimpanzee, and one day the animal loses it and kills everyone on set because, you know, it is a wild animal. He kills everyone on set but Ricky and one other co-star. The co-star is left with severe damage though. It's an incident that clearly scared Ricky, however, he still capitalizes on his and his co-star's grief, fear, and pain because it brings him money. There's even a scene where he admits to Emerald and OJ where he has this shrine dedicated to the chimpanzee and the events of the show, and that one couple paid him a ridiculous amount of money to spend the night in the exhibit, and he took it. This is his own grief, his own traumatic experience that happened to him that he's capitalizing off of, which again is driving that point home that it doesn't matter how terrifying and scarring these events are to us. If we can make money off of them, we will. That's what society does. This event where the chimpanzee attacked and killed everyone intrigued and terrified him. And whenever he's on screen, he's seen reminiscing about what happened to him. His greed carries into trying to make money off of this cloud as well. This alien, we can really call it. I know I said a cloud. It, it's disguised as a cloud, but really it's an alien. So he allows his greed to make money off of this alien as well, which results in not only his death, but his audiences as well. The main characters eventually find out that if they stare directly at the alien, it, it, it invites it to abduct and kill you. Despite all of the warnings given out, even a reporter for TMZ is trying to, you know, make money off of capturing the picture of what's going on and video of what's going on. He's warned by OJ to turn around and go back to where he came from. He's warned by Emerald to get out of here. It's dangerous. But what does he do? The whole time he's, you know, getting hurt, he's worried about his camera. Can you get my camera? Did I get it on video? Did I catch that? He's more worried about catching this on film so that TMZ can make money than he is about his own life. Like I said, despite all the warnings giving out, 
people still stare and they succumb to the alien anyway. And like I said, it's, you know, it's a, not really a critique because Jordan Peele doesn't critique. It's more of an observation. We're so trained to capture anything on our phones and technology. I just saw a recent video where these two women were, they, they swam too close to a whale and the whale tried to swallow them. And someone who was about maybe 12 feet away is filming this encounter. Those women could have been killed. Thankfully, they weren't. You know, they weren't. They were able to, like, escape out of the boat. I think the boat was damaged. But they came out fine. This person is recording on their phone. Rather than screaming for help or trying to paddle away because, hey, you could be next. Whales are dangerous. Instead of worrying about their own life and trying to get to safety, they're recording this. You know, these characters in the film are so worried about getting money from this event that they're capturing on their phone or, you know, having something cool to post on social media. They're worried about that before getting themselves out of danger. We've kind of become desensitized to these terrifying events in a lot of ways. And Nope really drives that point home. Now, this film is less metaphorical than Get Out or Us, but still powerful in its message. It doesn't use a whole lot of the stereotypical thriller tropes or even any blood or gore to scare its audiences. Instead, it uses the fear of the unknown and not easily understood to leave audiences uneasy, and it's very effective. I'm not into sci-fi like that, but that cloud-slash-alien was menacing. It kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. Nope is also the most humor Peel has used in any of his films, and it doesn't change the tone too abruptly and instead provides comedic relief. Hats off to Kiki Palmer, who was the star of the movie. Her comedic timing was as sharp as ever. She and Daniel Kaluuya make a dynamic pair, and I hope Peel continues to work with the both of them. Though not as good as his previous films, Nope will both intrigue and terrify you, much like the main characters are throughout the film. My rating is a 3 out of 5. So that wraps up my review of Nope. Please let me know what you think and also let me know where you rank Jordan Peele's three movies now. I personally rank them in the order they came out. Get Out, Us, and now Nope. That's the order. But let me know what you think. Let me know if you think this is one of his best films, one of his worst, or you don't really care all that much. Let me know. So before we get to the end of the episode, I had to talk about the song of the week and the song of the week is of course a song from Renaissance. And it is Virgo's Groove. It is one of the best songs on the album, which is hard because Renaissance is just one of those albums you play front to back. When you play one song, you want to play another, and then you end up just running the album back. It's just one of those albums. But Virgo's Groove is just... I already talked about how much I loved it, so I'm not going to I'm not gonna go over it again. But if you don't listen to any other song on this album, definitely listen to Virgo's Groove. It's so, so, so good. So we have reached the end of the episode. Thank you for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to keep up with this podcast further, then head to my website, www.listentomespeak.com. There are links to all of my social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I even have a YouTube page. And if you really liked what you heard and you want to support this podcast even further, then please consider donating to my listeners' donations. That can be found on my website, which is again at www.listentomespeak.com or my anchor page. And you can also give Listen to Me Speak a five-star rating anywhere you rate your podcasts. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.